You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If only Agent Jackson had gone right home after that baseball game. The Washington Senators were playing the Chicago White Sox. This was great because Eugene Jackson had just moved from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to take a new job as a federal agent. At the end of the game, however, as he drove home to his new apartment with his wife and another federal agent, Jim Fletcher, he saw a few doors down a man delivering a package in a brown paper bag to a door. Aha, Jackson said. Ten to one, it's a dealer. I'm going to make a buy. No, his wife said, it's Sunday. You're not on duty. I'm always on duty. His wife goes up to their apartment. Jackson approaches the man. Are you selling? Are you an agent, the man says. No, Jackson says. I'm just a guy from out of town. He showed him his District of Columbia license plates. Okay, the man said, but if you're an agent, I'm going to come back shooting. I'll be back in a half hour. And so it was a rage, and Jackson was excited. He was about to get his first buy in Chicago. This would look good in the office. Fletcher waited in his car. Jackson went up the stairs to his apartment, and he called for backup. No problem, the office said. They'd be there in 20 minutes. Great, plenty of time. 10 minutes to spare. Jackson's wife pleads with him, please bring your gun. Fletcher has his gun. It's okay. Jackson goes down the stairs unarmed. But as he arrives at the front porch, he could see that the man didn't take 30 minutes, as he said. He was back already, and he was talking to Fletcher. Hey, he said to Fletcher, where's your friend? Now the man had another package in his hand, which he shook. Wanting to help out Jackson make the buy, Fletcher told the man, he went to get his money. He's coming down the stairs. Okay, the man said, but I can't wait here on the street forever. Jackson comes out. Undaunted by the accelerated schedule of events here, knowing his backup was not here yet, Jackson nonetheless walked up to the man's car. You got the package? Yep. You got the money? Then it goes down. Jackson hands over the money, grabs the brown paper bag with, as it turns out, a gallon jug in it. The deal is done. And Jackson whips out his badge. Federal Prohibition Bureau, you're under arrest. At this point, the man answered with two shots from his revolver, sending Jackson down to the street. Fletcher gets out of the car with his revolver, but the man, who turns out to be a bootlegger named Tom Clark, fires four shots, empties his gun, and then runs. In a few days, he will be indicted for the killing of a federal agent.
But for one element here, that's a scene you could see in Miami Vice, NYPD Blue, Hill Street Blues, you name your cop television show, you've seen it again and again. It was 1932. Eugene Jackson would be one of five Prohibition Bureau agents, 40-plus other agents serving the federal government, who would be killed in the service of the noble experiment of alcohol prohibition. By the end of the next year, though, that package that Eugene Jackson sought to buy, a jug of whiskey, would no longer be a contraband item. Already, at the time of his killing, public opinion in the United States had turned against the duty for which Jackson died. Both national parties had platformed that now backed away from the enforcement of the prohibition of alcohol. The Democrats called for a repeal of the 18th Amendment. The Republican platform said the issue was divisive, and the party would not compel any member one way or the other. Hoover's White House was looking for some moderating steps, maybe increasing the amount of alcohol and beverages. It was all complicated by representation. Areas of the country that tended to support the repeal of prohibition were not represented as well as state legislatures and in Congress as those were dry. The constitutional mechanism. It's hard to repeal a constitutional amendment. So the law was on the books and it was being enforced. It was a fast turnaround for America. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution had passed in a time of wartime sacrifice, a time of progressive zeal and anti-slum crusades, a time of women's suffrage, where John Barleycorn, alcohol, was the evil that kept men from their wives, that squandered paychecks and shattered families. A constitutional amendment is not an easy thing to pass. You need Congress in majority, and you need three-fourths of the states. Yet for this issue, it was done twice. Once when the nation decided to ban sale and manufacture of alcohol, and once when it decided that prohibition was an error and should be reversed. In the history of America, it is the only time when an amendment to the Constitution was repealed. So something very serious had changed in the years between 1919 and 1933. Not just a minor mood change, something led to a case of national buyer's remorse. But what was it? On the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, Lisa Litz Neviar writes, Has there been a podcast comparing prohibition to the war on drugs? From what I've read, the new Ken Burns documentary hints at their similarities. Well, I have, despite the time lag between this question, the show's already been aired. I haven't watched Burns' documentary yet. One of the problems of not owning a TV set. So I hope I don't throw into coverage and get something wrong or say something that contradicts him or that he talked about in great detail anyway. But I've discussed Prohibition before, and I think it's slightly misunderstood, perhaps. Maybe the Burns special will help a bit. Just to throw something out there, for instance, Prohibition did not ban drinking, nor did it ban the possession of alcohol, unless it was in great amounts. Also, despite some real flaws and the national regurgitation of the 18th Amendment, it did have some permanent effects. And the amendment was repealed, but not all those effects. I think, though, that before I do that, discuss all those things, it might help to look at a very different example of prohibition, one that is not talked about as much, a prohibition crusade that may have ruined a nation. When Mikhail Gorbachev took power in a surprise in the Soviet Union in 1985, his KGB bodyguard called him a volcano of energy. He worked until 2 or 3 in the morning, rose at 7 a.m. Unlike the last two ailing old leaders at the Kremlin, this general secretary showed up in the office. No more walking corpses waving from the top of a mausoleum, the bodyguard joked. Gorbachev changed a lot in the country. The secretary of the Communist Party controlled everything in the centralized power of Soviet Russia. A president of the United States couldn't imagine such power. 
So with a young man, an energetic man at the helm, the nation was changing. But the first thing that Gorbachev pointed his sights at was not perestroika and not glasnost. It was booze. The nation, he felt, couldn't compete with the highest or near highest per capita alcohol consumption rate in the world. Soviet workers continuously showed up drunk. Marriages were being ruined. Health was adversely affected by vodka. It was so embedded in the culture. Gorbachev sought to reduce this. He wasn't a teetotaler himself, but he did see the evils of excessive use of alcohol in every party headquarters or the factories that were the ubiquitous center of Soviet life. There were now posters showing a giant hand refusing a drink. Government functions or party functions, state dinners, were dry affairs. The Westerners who did come to the Soviet Union, journalists or diplomats, were used to the old vodka treatment. Now, sparkling water was served. The joke in Russia was that Gorbachev was the mineralny secretar instead of generalny secretar, the drinker of mineral water. But it was no joke when police started arresting public drunks. No joke when those who showed up to work drunk were written up, fined, or fired. One of the post-paycheck day celebrations, so common in Soviet factories. And it was especially problematic when state stores selling liquor were only open two hours in the evening, with long lines. Given the length of time one had to wait and the restrictions, it was almost direct prohibition. Vodka and other alcohol was also heavily taxed by the state. Even as late as 2009, Gorbachev, no longer the head of any government, was praising his effort, and he urged the now post-Soviet Russia to have another prohibition crusade. He felt he had, at least for a time, reduced drinking, but it also drove liquor onto the black markets where liquor was often cheaper than the heavily taxed state product and certainly easier to get, available for sale at all times. The anti-liquor campaign also forced Russians to make moonshine or crude liquor from potatoes or beets. But most detrimental to the Soviet Union, it deprived the central government of the 100 billion rubles in tax revenue. Liquor taxes went all the way back to Stalin. Without this revenue coming in, the government was forced to print more money. This caused a hyperinflation that, even though the prohibition on alcohol, the anti-alcohol campaign technically, was ended in 1987, it was too late, and it cited that hyperinflation of one of the causes for the Soviet Union's fall. Such economic factors were also part of the downfall of American prohibition as well. In fact, probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Cities coveted the tax revenue from liquor sales in the Great Depression. So did states. And in a poor economy, many questioned why the ban on an industry that could at least provide income for some people, brewers and barkeeps perhaps. This was an argument for appeal. It had also been an argument for prohibition in the first place. It was thought that perhaps sober men would be more productive workers. Economist Irving Fisher said that the economy would grow at 10 to 20 percent per year after prohibition. It was one of a lot of wild predictions that were made after Prohibition passed in 1919. The slums will be a memory. Men will walk upright and children will laugh, cheered the Reverend Billy Sunday on the passage of Prohibition. Such were the utopian ideals behind this legislation. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Need to understand American prohibition, I think you have to consider the real target, and that is the slums, but especially the ubiquitous saloon. These drinking establishments not even officially bars in all cases, it might just be a storefront, might be part of someone's house. Highly unregulated, they existed in tenements and in towns in the West. The culture, these establishments proliferated, and in order to stay competitive, many had to resort to offering prostitution, gambling. McClure's Magazine talked of a Chicago overrun with places serving ale. One of the places existed for every 285 Chicagoans. Competition between breweries, and the desire of immigrants to make a few bucks in an easy-to-start business led to their spread. The Anti-Saloon League was the name of the organization that was really behind the national prohibition movement, and also the prohibition movements in several states before national prohibition. They were savvy, they were well-funded, they were a lobby group. They didn't care if a senator drank like a fish or had a wet bar, as long as they voted their way. Shut the saloon down, and drinking would go away soon. That was the basic premise behind national prohibition. And there were temperate types who felt that all drinking would end as well. Within the Falstead, which is the enabling act for the 18th, in other words, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution just says we're banning the manufacture and sale of intoxicating beverages. They left it up to Congress to decide what that is. There are clues, though, in that Volstead Act that this is kind of a wink nod that, hey, responsible, good members of society will still be able to keep their wet bar. The Volstead Act includes exemption for personal consumption and home manufacture. But listen to this for home manufacture, 200 gallons of cider or non-intoxicating fruit juice. But it was interpreted to mean wine. So 200 gallons per person per year. And Volstead allows you to serve guests in your home, right? So you had workarounds like the blind pig. Come and see the blind pig at our place. It's $5 to see the blind pig run around. Okay, oh, and by the way, while you watch this pig, we're serving liquor for our guests who are coming to see the blind pig. So you had personal exemption, favorite guest exemption, then you had a medical use exemption. So for, say, $3, you could get a doctor to write a prescription so that you could go and buy alcohol legally. Conveniently, the American Medical Association said alcohol was now a cure for diabetes and the common cold. Any good effects of this prohibition? Well, consumption of alcohol, most likely, from the available evidence, went down from when it was legal. 
That's not hard to imagine. And it's mixed with a probably a general trend in America downward uh, in terms of alcohol consumption in the modern age. With some evidence, uh, certain liver-related conditions, cirrhosis of the liver, for instance, cases of that went down. People were substituting. Some of the saloons became cafeterias. New York City added 6,000 new eateries. There was a 50% increase in milk consumption. Does the body good when there's nothing stronger to drink, perhaps? If you sold ginger ale, for instance, uh, you did pretty well. Uh, One ginger ale distributor in Boston reported that they sold 289,000 cases, 1919, and by 1925, we're selling 456,000. The ice cream manufacturers of the United States said they sold 230 million cases, 1919, up to 322 million cases in 1925. On the other hand, the black market for liquor meant that the cost of it went up. And as had been Gorby's experience in the 1980s, the money went from the government to the gangsters. Al Capone, the most famous one, of course, who he became a millionaire ten times over as the most famous and boisterous Chicago gangster during Prohibition. Homicide rates went up between 1919 and 1925. 16 homicides per 100,000 people in the United States. It's about 4.8 today. New York District Attorney tells the Senate in a hearing in 1926 that he was arresting about 500 people a month on prohibition-related offenses. And it would take 12 times the amount of federal judges that they had to process all the cases. Not surprisingly, police department costs in 30 cities across the United States went up 196%. Those are the bad effects that we know about. And my sense is that by the time you get to 1926, there was already an Americans for the Repeal of Prohibition Association, kind of a counter to the Anti-Saloon League. You had a Senate hearing that was not at all very favorable towards Prohibition. So probably by 1926, 1927, you were starting to get the public opinion to a situation where it was a simple vote at Congress. You might have ended this thing after all, but constitutional amendment is a little bit harder of a law to repeal. But it appears the Depression is what really made life difficult for the dries, the supporters of Prohibition, and really benefited the wets, the opponents of Prohibition. In the midterm of 1930, you got 70 new wet congressmen. John D. Rockefeller, who had been a dry, turned against Prohibition now. He supported it. Now he bankrolled the repeal. Joe Robinson, a dry senator from Arkansas, who had been the vice presidential candidate of the Democrats in 1928, now led a cause for repeal. His argument was now, let the states decide. This same idea, let the states decide, was echoed by the leading candidate for the presidency, Franklin Roosevelt said, the authority of the home and the churches is the fundamental force to address this problem. FDR, that great champion of state rights, local government, right? A small federal government. Well, on this issue at least. The time of depression has caused us to see more plainly than before, not only the political consequences of our actions, but the economics as well. Unquestionably, our tax burden would not be so heavy without prohibition. So you see this economic argument. President Hoover, even by 1932, also announced in his acceptance speech for renomination for president, the Republican convention, that he would leave it to the states to enforce prohibition laws, as long as the evils of the saloon did not come back. But, and this was a little embarrassing for the ticket, he had a vice presidential candidate who was against repeal. FDR had a lot of fun with that one, said during the campaign, 
The Republican ticket is high and dry on one end, and on the other, increasing moisture. It didn't matter, despite what Vice President Curtis thought. Both parties were pretty much for repeal, at least for allowing the states to vote on repeal, and important to our discussion, referral to the states. FDR was elected and repeal. He didn't really do it, but his election made the repeal a foregone conclusion. Prohibition ended in 1933, but it did have a lasting effect in that alcohol became legal but regulated. Notice, for instance, what the 21st Amendment says and what it doesn't say. You don't have any words in that amendment that say you have a right to beer. In fact, while it repeals the 18th, the 21st in Section 2 forbids, actually, the importation of liquor into a state that doesn't allow it. So it actually strengthens the ability of states to regulate. Liquor is more regulated than it had been prior to the 18th, in a sense. Every wet on the planet used some kind of qualifying verbiage that when they supported the prohibition repeal, like, we don't want the saloons to come back, or we want responsible drinking. You know, FDR, for instance, says, the intemperate use of intoxicating beverages has no place in our society. Prohibition, in a sense, chastened John Barleycorn and his unregulated walk through America. There were a lot of bars in America, of course, after repeal, a lot of bars in America now, but you didn't have the type of instant startup saloon and all its vices that just never returned. So powerful was the entrenched dry vote and the control over state legislatures that the 21st is the only constitutional amendment that used the obscure provision in the Constitution where it was approved by state conventions, three-quarters of the state conventions rather than the state legislatures to get around the dry anti-saloon league influence on those legislatures, or at least what people thought there was. It does go to show you how difficult it is to dislodge such a movement once it starts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you know me. I like to talk about the politics and where people were, and I haven't said much about drugs or answered the question really here. Drugs were regulated by the Harrison Act of 1914. So all the time that you had prohibition, there was federal regulation of most of the drugs that we know today. But if you take a product like cannabis, it started to be called marijuana because a lot of it was coming through uh, the Mexican border, through the Southwest. It was being talked about in the 1920s, but it was not till 1937, well after the repeal of prohibition, that this drug was officially dealt with by the federal government by name. And it's likely that if Clark the bootlegger who shot Agent Jackson had a bag of cannabis instead of a gallon of whiskey, that nothing might have happened. Well, suffice to say this anyway, there would not have been a federal agent 
on his tail. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was around. It had started in 1930, nine years after the Bureau of Prohibition started, and it was designed to ensure that the tax on narcotic drugs established by the Harrison Act was paid and the federal government got its revenue. One thing you do have during Prohibition is a lot of rhetoric that Prohibition was causing drug use. This was coming from the wets, those who favored repeal. And it seems to be a matter of more rhetoric without much basis in fact. But you do see it in articles and speeches. Senator William Vare of Pennsylvania uh, said, The drug use now has been appalling. He was a wet. But the growth of the concept of federal law enforcement, that the United States government, the federal government in Washington, D.C., would have a police force, did start with prohibition. And indeed, the Marijuana Act of 1937 was passed by Congress without the approval of the American Medical Association and mostly on the recommendation of the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. A man named Harry Anslinger said U.S. drug policy until 1964. Anslinger had been a prohibition agent. So at least the gateway to the federal war on drugs was rooted in prohibition. Again, I'm falling short of saying that prohibition caused it because I, I don't think so. There are comparisons to be made to prohibition and the current war on drugs and attempts to decriminalize or to legalize drugs. Also, contrast. There are differences, and I think those must be stated first. First, prohibition never regulated use. Where current drug laws do, they regulate use and possession in addition to dealing and manufacturing. The other difference is you had a business and an accompanying business lobby. You had the breweries, the wineries, the bars, a real politic factor. You may not like it, but there it is. What business group do you have pushing for this? And during the time of the 1930s, you had a business that had existed just 10 years before and they didn't all go away, and they pushed for repeal. Another difference, alcohol may be harmful. It's especially harmful to alcoholics and definitely harmful to drivers or operators of heavy machinery. But we kind of have a good sense of the effects after a lot of experience with it. This gets a little harder with drugs, particularly the stronger ones. Another difference, prohibition was a direct affront to an important nationality in America, German-Americans. Irish-Americans, too. Both of these groups, particularly the German-Americans, were weakened politically in the 1920s because of World War I. And they didn't have the same role in the national dialogue they were made fun of. And in fact, in passing Prohibition, there was a lot of comments about Hun power and, you know, allegiance to the Kaiser, etc. By the time you get to repeal time, they're back in the political scene and uh, they're able to push for repeal. I don't see the same dynamic there, again, going to the real politics. Even if this prohibition on drugs is so wrong, just like the alcohol one was, and if you want to make that comparison, there simply is a longer history of it now. It wasn't just a 12-year noble experiment. It's been going on for quite some time. It's going to be a little harder to dislodge. Another difference is the prohibition law in the 1920s, it was to the point they had no respect for that law whatsoever and flaunted it and where the average citizen was losing respect for all federal law. I realize that there are people who violate the law on drugs. I have a hard time, you know, we could argue about it. That could be subjective, I fully admit. I have a hard time saying that you have the same level of attitude towards the drug laws now that you did about prohibition in the 1920s. On the other hand, and this is the part you kind of know, there's a lot of similarities particularly the crime factor, that replacing a complete prohibition 
with not complete liberalization, but a regulation of activity may lead to better use and local control, use up less resources of the government, and might even bring down total crime. I tend to look at history from any angle and not just go with the kind of things that people will normally spout out, the real quick statements. In this case, the look at the history doesn't reveal anything different than the general consensus that probably if you go with some decriminalization or legalization, particularly on the less powerful stuff, that you might have some effect. It's not for me to say. In my view, the road to the 21st gives you a good example of how things will go if this is something you want. It's going to be some resistance. It's hard to change the law against an enforcement activity. People like President Hoover, for instance, you go back to the 1930s, were conflicted. You know, he had told a friendly, I'm an enforcer of the law, but I've got a sense that the federal government shouldn't be doing this. He didn't know quite what to do. What was his real role? And he talked to people about that. Eventually, at the time of his re-election, he decided to make a statement. I think you're going to see the same thing now. It's hard for people who are supposed to enforce the laws on such an issue such as drugs to come out against it. In the case of Prohibition, it took just 12 years. I think if you're looking at the drug laws, it's going to take a little longer. It's going to start in some local areas. There's going to be some debates about it. And then if you do get some kind of a relaxing of these laws, that's what it'll be if it's anything like the 21st. You actually had a bit more regulation than you had prior to the whole Prohibition experiment. So I believe that's what you'll see with drug decriminalization if it happens. This is a long one. It's been a, a good topic. Glad to have the discussion. I want to thank you for listening. The website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.